From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Yes, from Kalamata, coming to you live from the beautiful Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece. Interesting week. One of the great things about uh, where I'm situated, and one of the things that you should know, is if you come here, and you should come here, uh, rent a car, because there are so many great places to visit within an hour, an hour's drive. And keeping in mind, an hour's drive here, uh, you know, the distances are a little deceiving because an hour, you're, you know, you're winding your way through the mountains. So it's not, you know, that great a distance. It just takes a little time to get there. But the drives are always exceptional. I mean, you, you, you cannot imagine the views here where you've got the mountains on one side and the oceans on the other. Uh, ancient Messini, we just, uh, we went there yesterday. Uh, the boys and I and my nephew uh, Nick and some friends here that we've met in Greece. Uh, an amazing ruins uh, that were actually what happened was when the Greek Empire fell and the Roman Empire sort of took over and the Romans moved in, they were so impressed with Greek culture and Greek civilization that they started to to reproduce a lot of the uh, the Greek statues and the temples and so forth, and, and, and they absorbed much of Greek culture into the new Roman Empire. Uh, and so when you're looking at a lot of these uh, Greek statues, they're in marble. And one of the things that I learned was, or uh, one of the things that I've learned is, these statues are Roman reproductions. The Greeks worked primarily in bronze. And in times of war... Often, the Greeks would end up melting down those statues and so forth to make weapons and shields. And, of course, the, the Greeks were always at, at war, the Spartans and the Athenians, a lot of fighting amongst themselves, of course. Uh, so when you see a Greek statue in marble, it's actually a Roman reproduction. Just one of the many things I've learned here while uh, uh, we're enjoying our stay. Now in our third week, heading into our fourth week, actually, but this is our third show live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata. Interesting week. Little North had a mishap, fell off some monkey bars, and broke his arm. Uh, fractured his arm in two places, two hairline fractures near the wrist. We took him to the hospital here in Kalamata. I have to say, thoroughly impressed with the health care uh, here. Within an hour, he saw a doctor was sent down to x-rays, received an x-ray, went back to the doctor, and had a full cast on his arm and a sling, as I say, in less than an hour. No charge, because we're tourists. So very, very appreciative to the, uh, the staff at the hospital here in Kalamata. One of the things, though, that's interesting, you'll hear, and I'm saying it a lot now to, uh, to North as he's walking around in his cast, is Sagasiga, which... I guess a little translation is slowly, slowly. I'm, I'm always telling him, go slowly. You know, I don't want you to, to fall down and, and hurt your other arm. But you hear people saying this all the time, especially to children. Sagasiga, slow down, slow down. But it's more than just slow down. It's really a philosophy here in Greece. And I'm starting to understand that. You often hear people say, you know, we're on Greek time, which might mean a person may show up a little bit later than anticipated. They're on Greek time. So Sagasaga is this way of life. Just relax, slow down, appreciate things around you. Sagasaga. And I'm doing that now. And one of the things I find is I'm driving through the mountains, whether I'm on my way to ancient Messenia or some other place, a restaurant or another beach, is I'm finding I'm just 
finding time to contemplate, contemplate the universe, if you will. And that's where we're going to go in this first hour of the program, because my guest, Jim Elvich, likes to muse on the universe, the mysteries of the universe. Jim has a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He has applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures. He also holds four patents in digital signal processing. Beyond the high-tech realm, however, Jim Elvich has years of experience as a musician, writer, and truth seeker. He merged his technology skills with his love of music, developed one of the first PC-based digital music samplers, and co-founded Radio Amp, the first private label online streaming radio companies. You can follow his blog, and it's a fascinating read always, theuniversesolved.com, Musings on the Nature of Reality. A great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Jim Elvich. Jim, how are you? Great, Richard, and uh, thank you very much for the, the nice welcome, and congratulations on your lengthy stay in Greece. I've been there a few times myself, and I can understand why you like it. Yeah, I can't wait to get home, obviously, to see the mighty Aphrodite. The boys miss uh, their mom, but I tell you, once this place gets a hold on you, you just want to come back again and again. I can't wait till next summer. <laughs> yeah, Jim, that's... I've always enjoyed your blogs. So much to talk about tonight, but I want to talk about something that you've um, written about fairly recently. And it's a very interesting title. It's called Creating Souls is Like Boiling the Ocean. Creating Souls is Like Boiling the Ocean. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that was a little bit of a bizarre one, wasn't it, the uh, the title there? But, you know, I was actually thinking about it one day and thinking how if you're trying to establish sort of a, a large-scale movement or trend or something like that, and people use the phrase boil the ocean, meaning you know, you're, you're really trying to make something significant happen. You know, in, in technology, maybe you're developing the next you know, iPad, the next big thing, something like that. Um, and, and thinking a little bit about you know, the actual literal translation of boiling the ocean, you know, what if you wanted to just raise the temperature of the ocean by a degree? Um, you know, and I was thinking, how would you do that? You, you certainly wouldn't want to take a heat lamp on the, you know, the shores of the ocean and try to heat up one little section of it and expect it to kind of you know, diffuse throughout the entire ocean. That would take forever. And I actually did some calculations because I, I just think this kind of thing is fun to, to think about. Um, that a thousand watt heat lamp would take you know tens of thousands of times the the length of the universe to actually heat the ocean, but even then it would never work because um, ocean heat is radiated into the atmosphere, convection processes are inefficient, all that kind of stuff. so the way you do it is you you do what you might call a sort of recursive distribution function so first thing is say well let's put heat lamps every square meter of the ocean um, but but even that doesn't work because the, the the amount of time that it would take for convection to bring it down to the bottom of the ocean would would be tremendously lengthy so then you think well maybe if there was a way to apply a heat lamp to every cubic meter of the ocean now you've got something so you know, as you think about this, you think about 
you know, ways of kind of distributing the function. And you may use the same analogy for, say, starting a movement, Occupy Wall Street, something like that. You're certainly not going to get very far if you're standing in a street corner with a megaphone uh, trying to convince 300 million people to follow your, your ideals. What you need to do is get maybe a thousand other people and send them to, to cities and and even then each one of them has a big task uh, to convince the number of people in each city so maybe they each get a thousand people so this idea of subdividing your goal into smaller goals but passing along the information needed to uh, to make that goal happen in the in the ever smaller areas is you know, there's a lot of analogies to this, and one is you may think about gray goo. You've probably heard that expression with nanotech. It's, you know, it, it's a way that um, instructions can be sent to uh, to nanobots, and you could send this with this distributed recursive mechanism. So, what does this all have to do with souls? Well, there are a number of writers and researchers who um, put forth the idea that. We live in a sea of consciousness, and maybe this is where the sea, the ocean metaphor, you know, kind of, kind of struck me. That we live in a sea of consciousness, and we're all actually connected. But, so why do we feel so individual? We feel individual because um, we, we have compartmentalized some segment of that consciousness, and we are acting within that segment to... Uh, to learn things, to experience uh, physical reality so that we can uh, learn and grow and evolve. So that programming, if you will, that idea of segmenting little chunks of consciousness could be a similar kind of thing to the ocean metaphor where it's kind of recursive. You start with big chunks of consciousness and then you break that down to smaller chunks and then smaller chunks within that until you get to the point where you have an individual, a human, an entity. Um, and as those individuals raise their consciousness level, learn, and things like that, um, what they're really doing is raising the overall consciousness of the, the big universal consciousness. So these ideas are not, they're not actually new ideas. You know, they've, they've been in writings throughout the ages, religious writings, spiritual writings, shamanistic writings, um, and traditions throughout the ages that we're all connected, but it's starting to kind of make some sense even in a scientific perspective and a mathematical perspective when you, you think about, you know, mechanisms like this. Um, you know, it actually kind of ties together. And that fits nicely into your, one of the overarching themes that you discuss is that we are living in a programmed reality. So, you know, we could get into who that programmer might be a little bit later. Jim Elvich is with us, electrical engineer and scientific truth seeker who is uh, here to discuss leading-edge stories, uh, debates, philosophy from the fields of cosmology, nanotech, artificial intelligence, physics, virtual reality, gaming, and metaphysics. Uh, one of the things that um, I, I did when I came over here was we packed some uh, some DVDs for the boys, just in case we had a rain day. And uh, one of their favorite uh, movies, of course, is uh, the, the whole Lord of the Rings uh, series. They're fascinated by uh, Frodo's invisibility cloak. And from what I understand, one of the first, you call it a meta-screen, a lightweight invisibility cloak has been created. Tell me about that. Yeah, this is actually really interesting. Um, and, and people have probably heard of 
invisibility cloaks for a long time. Uh, Harry Potter explores that that whole idea as well. Um, and actually, I, when I was a kid, I used to think about, uh, you know, if there was a way to bend light around an object. So let's say you put something on that when the light comes in, it goes completely around you, and so that what you're actually seeing when you look at somebody is what's behind them. Let's take a time out. When we come back, let's get back to this invisibility cloak. Jim Elvidge, scientific truth seeker, here on The Conspiracy Show, live from the Elite City Resort in beautiful Kalamata, Greece. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. The music you hear as we come back in is, uh, I believe, from the movie The 300 Spartans. If you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it tends to be a little gruesome in places, some pretty bloody uh, battle scenes, as you can well imagine, but uh, an incredible movie, The uh, 300 Spartans. And very apropos, of course, as we broadcast live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, uh, Greece. Uh, Jim Elvich is with us, and you can follow his wonderful blog, Musings on the Nature of Reality. Uh, his website is theuniversesolved.com, and I've linked up to that on uh, the homepage of my website, richardserrett.com. Just click on Jim Elvich's name, and it'll take you right there, and uh, enjoy his blogs. We were talking about this new meta screen, a lightweight invisibility cloak. Uh, that um, is now reality, Jim, and you were sort of describing the initial sort of rudimentary types of cloaks that they were experimenting with, and then we broke for a break. So let's go back to that and just recap. The initial idea was something like this. Um, imagine if you had, a, say, a camera behind you pointing away from your back, and what that camera was seeing was projected on a screen that was in front of you. So if somebody is perfectly positioned in front of you looking at that screen, what they'll actually see is what's behind you. So effectively, they'll feel like they're looking through you. Now, you can imagine that that's only going to work in certain angles, and of course you'd have to have you know, a, a matrix of cameras or something like that, a matrix of all these screens. Um, so it doesn't seem like it would scale very well and you know, be very flexible, and certainly it's not. So the early invisibility ideas used little techniques like this, and you just had to be positioned you know, perfectly to, to be able to get the effect. Then they went to something that was uh, called metamaterials, and those are materials that have different diffraction um, characteristics. So diffraction is how light gets bent. You know, when the light goes through a prism, it gets, it gets bent by the glass. Um, it gets bent in water. So all different, um, you know, clear materials will have different properties that bend the light in different ways. So by carefully making these materials, they can make cloaks that guide the light around an object. So let's say I'm wearing something that's sort of cylindrical or some, you know, particular shape that's made of these materials that will guide the light around the object so that when people look at it, what they're actually seeing is, is behind it. So it's a little bit more sophisticated than that first sort of, you know, camera screen idea that I talked about. But again, it, it has some limited applications. Well, what these uh, researchers at the University of Texas were working on is a really cool idea. Um, and it's, it's certainly not um, 
uh, polished up by any means. They're, they're just experimenting with it at this point. But what happens is it's a, it's a screen that produces an out-of-phase uh, light field that cancels the reflected radiation. So like when you look at something, you're seeing the reflection of light off of that thing that, that comes to your eye. Well, imagine if you could take that same reflection but invert the waveform, the light waveform, so that it cancels out, like two waves canceling out um, in every different direction. And it's certainly a, a, a challenging engineering uh, you, you know, feat to be able to accomplish that, but they have done it at microwave levels, um, and they're working on getting it up to uh, visible light levels. So it's a completely different technology than the metamaterials. But it, it actually reminds me, there was a short story by Arthur Clarke uh, years ago, wrote something called the Fenton Silencer, and it was this uh, invention that, uh, if I remember right, the character's name was Rupert Fenton, created, and it would just sit in the middle of the room, and it would take all the sounds coming in, and it would invert them and transmit them back out so that it canceled the sounds, and it would effectively suck all the noise out of the room. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a fascinating concept, but in a way, that's what this invisibility idea does, except it does it with light. It cancels out the, the reflected light. So pretty that cool, like pretty cool technology. like true invisibility to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the metamaterials are obviously very challenging to get those right. If you're wearing something, you know, it's going to have wrinkles in it and folds, and as you move around, all the angles change. So having something that could uh, respond at different angles is, is I think, really more likely a, a, a way of the future for, for cloaking. But, but you know... Imagining, daring to imagine the battlefield uh, applications for such a device. I mean, if you could, if you could wrap a fighter jet in this or a, a soldier, uh, I mean, this would totally uh, tilt the balance in, in, uh, in warfare. Absolutely. And, you know, the, uh, the, the fighter jets that are cloaked, that have radar cloaking, those have very sharp edges and, and very um, straight angles. And the reason for that is so that um, it, it can reflect and cancel uh, or absorb things, um, and it doesn't have the, the curved edges that cause uh, a lot of radar traces and things like that. So, you know, as these technologies improve, now you can go back to normal shaped airplanes and, and uh, tanks and, and uh, you know, uniforms and things like that. How far away do you think? I'm asking you to speculate. How far are we away from this type of invisibility becoming um, marketable or, or uh, accessible? Well, I would think for for things like vehicles or for military applications, it can't be. I, I'm just totally speculating here, but it can't be more than ten ten years away um, for something that we might wear. Um, you know, probably much further than that. But, you know, if you think about it, the, the implications of this are really kind of staggering because you realize that the technology, although it's at its infancy, you can see where it's going. And you can imagine at some point um, people will be able to cloak themselves to visible light. And so if we're, say, I don't know, 30 years away from being able to do that, then some other civilization that is 
only 30 years advanced from us can be, for all intents and purposes, invisible to us. That's an interesting point, actually, and it, it leads me into one of your other blog postings, and that has to do with alien hunters, and you're saying they're sort of looking for aliens in all the wrong places, that the idea of SETI trying to uh, locate radio transmissions in outer space is probably a waste of time. Yeah, I kind of think so, Richard. I, I mean, I, I did a, a, a calculation on, on one of the articles that I wrote about exactly that. And if you figure out how far away something would have to be to be able to receive a signal that we're sending or vice versa, and given the power that we send it out at and taking into account how that signal gets attenuated through space, it doesn't get very far beyond the solar system before the level of power drops down to the, effectively the cosmic background radiation. So it's, it's lost in the noise. So this, this whole thing is based on the assumption that, A, other civilizations, aliens, ETs, or whatever, are using radio technology. Why would they? Why, you know, even if they do, if they fo exactly follow our course of evolution just the way we did, the duration of time that we're using radio waves is actually pretty short. We, we, don't, we don't broadcast that much anymore. You know, shortwave is dead. Big, powerful stations are dead. You know, we're using Wi-Fi, low-power technologies, uh, digital technologies, uh, lower-power satellite feeds and things like that. So our footprint, our radio footprint, has already come and gone. You know, the, the amount of radio wave generated by the Earth now is in decline. So right. even if it's other civilizations a, were doing the same years thing. and out, it's over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so we would have to catch somebody at exactly the right time, and even then they'd have to be really close or significantly more powerful than what we're doing now. And, and all of it mathematically it just doesn't make a, a lot of sense. So there are some astronomers who are starting to think out of the box a little bit, and they're thinking in terms of, you know, what kind of spectral signatures might be created by you know, a really advanced civilization. And there was a concept back in the 60s uh, called the Dyson Sphere, um, named after a physicist. And that's the idea that uh, a civilization at some point learns to utilize all of the radiation from the star that it's around. So it creates this, perhaps, a sphere around the star. But I think that's flawed thinking, again, because it, it assumes that we have this increasing thirst for and need for power. So what we need today in terms of watts of power for the human race, um, 100 years will be, we'll need 100 times as much, and that's going to keep on going to the point where we have to um, tap into all of, this, all of the source of the uh, energy from our star. But we're actually not heading that direction. We're, you know, Devices that we need to communicate are getting lower and lower in power. We need less power as time goes on. Um, vehicles are getting lower and lower in power. A lot of the technologies that are being built now can move you from one place to another with less power than before. So, you know, even, even lighting and, you know, we already talked about radio waves in, in decline. So, you know, all of the needs that we used to have for huge amounts of power are, are kind of going away. So I don't think Dyson's fears are going to be something that a really advanced civilization is, is going to have 
anyway. So I don't, I don't even think that's that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so if it's not the Dyson Sphere and if it's not radio transmission, uh, Jim, what do you think is the best way to search the the, uh, the, the heavens for signs of, of life elsewhere in the universe? Yeah, I mean, first you have to kind of assume that there's, if, if, if you're looking for intelligent life of the type of us or advanced, you don't really have a chance because if they want you to know about them, um, the, they'll let you, if, but they probably don't because they're so far advanced from us, they're well cloaked. Um, but if you just want to see where there might be any kind of life, plant life, um, any kind of biological life that is, um, you know, not as advanced as us, for example, then biosignatures might be the way to do. So um, looking at uh, spectral signatures of, of planets to the extent that we can. Now, it's, it's hard to do for these distant exosolar planets that we're discovering now, but um, as technology improves, we may be able to do that. Um, you know, but even locally, you know, our uh, Mars, there's a lot of fascination about Mars and whether or not there could be any life forms on there. And so we have probes there trying to figure that out. But you can imagine that, you know, if there were biological life, that we would be able to detect that with some spectral signatures from Mars that, um, you know, where organic materials are generating uh, certain uh, spectral signatures. We're not seeing that. So um, is that because our our technology is not quite there yet, um, it's not sensitive enough, or it just plain isn't there, you know, time will tell. But to, to get outside of our solar system and see spectral signatures, biological uh, signatures from other planets, or, you know, we're, our technology is just not there yet. But that's probably the best chance that we're going to find something that's, uh, that's behind us. The chance that we find something that's ahead of us is only going to happen if they want us to know. That's, that's very interesting you mentioned that. Assuming that they, they are out there and that, let's say, they're visiting this planet and the UFO phenomena is real, people are seeing UFOs. This, you know, keeping in mind, we, we're only 30 years away, uh, perhaps, from, from achieving true invisibility, uh, cloaking uh, aircraft and so forth. That, that might explain why these uh, craft that people are seeing seem to flit in and out of, out of uh, the visible spectrum or out of reality, uh, in a sense. Jim Elvich is with us, holds a master's degree in electrical engineering, and you can follow his blog, Musings on the Nature of Reality, at his website, theuniversesolved.com. Uh, you, you said something in that same, or you wrote something in that same blog, which I think is, a, is a, a nice leaping off point when we come back from our next break, which is upcoming. And let me just crib here from, from um, that blog. You say, we are at, in the beginning stages of a new facet of evolution as a species, not a physical one, but a consciousness-oriented one. Quantum mechanics has shown us that object, objective reality doesn't exist. Scientists are so frightened by the implications of this that they are, for the most part, in complete denial. But the con construct of reality is looking more and more like it is simply data. Now, as I say, we're heading into a break here shortly, Jim, but let's just begin that conversation now, and we'll pick it up on the other side. Quantum mechanics has shown us that objective reality doesn't exist. That's a pretty heady statement. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, it is. Um, and, and this has a lot to do with something called the observer effect. So there have been um, experiments for a long time, these double-slit experiments that have 
baffled physicists. And basically what seems to be happening is that the, um, you know, whether or not a light or electrons or matter for that, that matter, uh, no pun intended, um, you know, molecules even, whether they behave like waves or particles depends on your sort of observational intent. So okay, I've got to jump in here. Sorry. Uh, okay. the, uh, the music is creeping up, and I'm a little behind here. So let's take a time on welcome sure, no back problem. to Melvich, Mysteries of the Universe here on The Conspiracy Show, live from the Elite City Resort, Kalamata, Greece. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, Greece, Jim Elvidge, scientific truth seeker, a blogger. Musings on the nature of reality can be uh, found at theuniversesolved.com. Uh, Jim, uh, sorry we had to jump in there. Sometimes I can't hear the music breaking up or uh, fading up, rather, from uh, 6,000 miles away. So uh, <laughs> we were discussing the the very nature of reality and this idea that has scientists so frightened they don't even want to discuss it, and that is that quantum mechanics seems to be showing us that objective reality does not exist. So you were talking about particles and waves and how they tend to behave differently depending on whether or not they're being watched. Sure, yeah, there's this whole history of these experiments, and um, initially it, it looked like when you tried to measure the location of uh, of a particle that then you would de- actually it would start behaving like a particle but then when you stopped trying to determine its location it would behave like a wave and this was really curious so you know people started saying well maybe it's because of the measuring equipment that you're using to determine its location so they would leave the measuring equipment um, there collecting but not actually look at its results and depending on whether you observe the results or not um, it would behave differently. So in other words, what seems to be happening is that our consciousness, our the, the very fact that we ha- are observing something, is causing reality to um, appear one way or another. So a lot of physicists over the years have kind of just, uh, you know, this is revulsion. The, you know, they, they've, they've come up with all kinds of theories as to what's going on and what's happening, and one by one those theories dis- disappear. Um, and I think the final nail in the coffin was a, a study that was done in 2008 by a group in Vienna called Ikoki, I-Q-O-Q-I. And they did some very interesting experiments that showed to uh, an accuracy of like 80 orders of magnitude, I mean ridiculously accurate experiments, that reality really does not exist until you observe it. So this is... I mean, this is, you know, kind of an astounding result, and a lot of scientists who have built their, you know, research on the assumption that we live in a, you know, deterministic, materialistic type of word world, they don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear the, the idea that consciousness may have something to do with, with creating reality. So they'll pursue some other kind of research and kind of put their head in the sand. But, you know, the guys who are really probing this and, and probing the, uh, you know, the, the fringe, uh, the fringes of this, this idea are finding out that, for sure, um, objective reality really doesn't exist until consciousness gets involved and observes it. And that actually makes perfect sense if, if you think about our reality um, as a consciousness-first type of system and not a matter-first type of system. 
Um, and, and I've been, you know, doing that and writing about that for, for many years now, um, but mostly from the standpoint of the idea that it could be a simulation. So if everything is just data, if matter ultimately is just data and everything that we interact with is really just data, our consciousness is um, interacting with that data and causing this reality to happen the, the way, you know, the way we're seeing it. So, so what does that mean, Jim, in practical terms? If I leave a room, if I shut the door, does that mean that that room doesn't exist? It, it, it's a waveform that simply collapses the moment I look away? No, because you've already interacted with it. So if, if there is a... Uh, let's, let's think about it in, in terms of a, uh, a computer game, because I think it's a, a really good analogy. Let's say that you have created a computer game um, that is a one of these massively multiplayer online role-playing games, um, and it has a room in it that nobody has entered because there's no key available to go in the room. Well, from a programming standpoint, you don't need to design the inside of that room until somebody actually opens the door and walks in. In fact, it would be inefficient to design the inside of the room. It would it would be inefficient for us to, um, you, you know, if if you were thinking of our reality as being something that was designed, as I tend to do, it would be inefficient for that system to design the interior of every single cell down to the point where you could only see it with like an electron microscope. It doesn't need to until you actually get down to that level. So. That's why these experiments are showing these results because we are getting down to the level of um, where it really matters, where where you're actually you know kind of looking at whether a particle goes here or a particle goes there. Now, as far as this this room is concerned, um, once you uh, find a key, open the door, walk in the room. If the if the system that is designing this this room is efficient and doing this in a um, dynamic way, it'll very quickly, you know, pull in its algorithms, design the room, and you look around and you see, uh, you know, whatever it, whatever it is that it's decided to design. Now, once you leave that room, there's no sense in it becoming nothing again. That would be inefficient. It's already been um, interacted with. So you, you see what I'm saying? I got it. Well, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. And uh, I want to delve further into this because you, you, you go further and talk about how consciousness controls the body and doesn't emerge from it, which leads to the question, why do we need bodies? Back with Jim Elvich here on The Conspiracy Show, live from the Elite City Resort, Calamata, Greece. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back live from the Elite City Resort Hotel in Kalamata, Greece, where we've been broadcasting for the last three weeks and two more to go before we head on home. Jim Elvidge is with us, electrical engineer, scientific truth seeker, and blogger, and you can follow his musings on the nature of reality at theuniversesolved.com, and we're talking about the very nature of consciousness right now, uh, and how consciousness uh, may not 
be merely a product uh, of the of the mind or the body that uh, you know emerges from the body, but may in fact it may be the other way around. Consciousness controls the body, which then leads to the question which you discuss in your blog, Jim. Why then do we need bodies? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is probably the 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 big the big thing that's going to happen i think in in the 21st century is, is there will be uh, a realization that this is the case and like everything when uh, we'll just take an example like uh, cold fusion cold fusion when when it was first um discovered or reported on by Fleischmann and Pons these guys were you know laughed out of the country laughed out of the scientific community and then 25 years later um CERN said that the effect that the that Fleischmann and Pons demonstrated was actually real and bears further study. And of course, all along the way, um, you know MIT and uh, you know the United States Army and, and U.S. Department of Energy and all these other reputable uh, agencies and, and organizations have realized that this already exists. So. This is what this is the pattern in science. When there's something revolutionary, a revolutionary thought, it takes a long time for for people to kind of come to terms with it because they have to throw away old ideas, and that's that's painful for experts to do. But the the fact is, there really isn't any evidence that consciousness emerges from the brain. The only evidence that that is often pointed to is things like, well, when we put uh, probes in the brain and we stimulate the person by showing them pictures or, or particular words, various parts of the brain light up, and that, that therefore proves that consciousness is coming out of the brain. Well, but that's, that's actually ridiculous because you could do the same thing with your television set and, and put you know, an electrical probe in the television set and say, well, look, the programming is being generated by my TV set. It's not. It's coming from some, somewhere else. So that doesn't really prove anything, but that's the only thing that um, the you know, materialistic reductionists can point to. On the other hand, there's tremendous amount of evidence that consciousness is separate from the body. And I, I believe I, I uh, have a blog post about that, or maybe uh, also in, in my book, that... Um, it, you know that uh, that lists a lot of this evidence. I mean, one one place is near death studies. So uh, cardiologist Pim von Lummel um, did 20 years of research uh, and support. Uh, you know, has supporting scientific data on near death experiences, um, and came to the conclusion that endless consciousness has always been uh, independent of the body. That there's no way to explain these things from a dying brain. Um, in addition, there are uh, studies of blind people who have had out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences that gained knowledge of facts during these, these uh, experiences that they could have only learned through a faculty like vision, but they didn't have vision. Um, right. And then there were relevant eyewitnesses that corroborated their testimony. So they were able to travel outside of their body, see things, um, and report on those, and, and that evidence is corroborated. And there's just tons and tons and tons of research like this that, that once, once you take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to be totally open-minded and look at the evidence that supports the idea that consciousness is separate from the body and look at the evidence that, that, that says consciousness um, emerges from the body, you, you have to acknowledge that it's the, it's the former. 
there's just too much evidence. If this is true, and consciousness, if I'm following along correctly, then does that mean that consciousness creates matter? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, and now this this gets into an area that's pretty speculative for me. Um, I, um, I tend to to like some of the writings of uh, people like Tom Campbell and Stephen Kaufman, who have you know really kind of from a, taken a scientific point of view on the nature of matter and consciousness and how this whole reality works. And you know, I think what they will say is that matter um, really is just data. So we interact with that data. Um, kind of in the way we talked about before, where there's uh, a possibility of changing the way the data is arranged um, through our consciousness, then we will we'll change that, that data. Um, you know, and that, that explains the observer effect and explains all kinds of um, other things that, that have happened that we don't have traditional scientific explanations for, explains all the anomalies. In fact, all these quantum mechanics anomalies like uh, entanglement and observer effect and even there are some retro causality, some, some studies that show that things happen, um, that change things that happened in the past. Um, I, I might point your audience to a, there's a wiki, Wikipedia page called the Quantum Eraser uh, Experiment. And all those things, I, I've written um, pseudocode or, you know, kind of uh, 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 sort of an artificial programming language that explains every one of those. I could, I could program all of those effects um, programmatically. So that doesn't prove that this is all under program control. But if you have one theory that fits that explains every single anomaly out there, and you don't have any other theory that explains more than two or three of them, then I think that theory, you know, bears uh, some investigation and bears some, some serious consideration. And I think more and more people are starting to do this. You're starting to see this creeping into um, popular culture and, and science articles now. Um, there, When I first started this, there were very few people who were talking about these kinds of things. Now there are a lot, and that's, that's, that's good evidence that we're heading in the right direction. And I can certainly see why the material reductionists are, are loath to discuss this, because it, it really uh, throws everything wide open in terms of the nature of reality, who we are, why we're here, how we got here, where we go. Uh, it, it's, it's all bets are off. It does, and, and, you know, there's even some, I don't know, some kind of bigger ideas with this, and, you know, I think, I, I mean, I love conspiracies like everybody else, and I, and I you know, like political intrigue and, and following what's going on in the world, but when you take a step back and you look at it and you think, well, you know, all these rises and falls of civilization and all this spying on each other and you know this this country doing this to that country and all that it's kind of like moving the deck chairs around on the, on the titanic you know it's it's creating a lot of of noise at, at, a, at a you know kind of civilization holistic level but the things that are really significant in terms of evolving humanity are things like what India did recently and, and they acknowledge that dolphins are non-human people so therefore you know dolphins should be treated um, exactly as we would treat humans and given the same rights 
there are four countries now that have done this. And I think that's, those kinds of things are actually good signs that our humanity is evolving. Um, you know, not that we're, we're able to, you know, crush some other country in a war. Exactly. No, and that's why we, we love to talk about those things as well. And that's why we have people like you to come on the program because we only, it's like we need a salve or a, a salve or a, uh, um, we need to cleanse our palate from all of this negativity and noise, as you say, and, and uh, you come bearing good news. Uh, I want to talk, just, we have a few minutes left. In the time that remains, another recent blog, I guess this goes back to the spring, you, everyone is uh, talking about 3D printers, very excited that this is the new uh, industrial revolution, or it's going to make the industrial revolution look like it was nothing. The idea that you can have essentially a printer uh, and it's desktop manufacturing. You wrote a blog about a 3D printed robot that can actually assemble itself. Talk to me about that for a few moments. Yeah, this is some crazy stuff that, that's going on in the 3D printing world. You know, it's, it's kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, and and almost every month you read something else that can be done with 3D printers is just amazing. So what this one is is a... Um, uh, this is Harvard and MIT created this 3D printed um, device. Now, imagine it comes out of a printer and it's flat, um, and it really it can almost assemble itself. So it's not quite self-assembling yet. But what what ha- a human has to plug in the power and the uh, and the motor to it. But once it does that, it's made of materials, and these materials are. Uh, generated by the 3D printer. It's like you, you pour them in the 3D printer and you give it the instructions on where to apply the materials. They're called polymers or memory polymers that that um, they bend in certain ways. So they have these predefined hinges that cause the, the polymers, once you plug them in, to actually automatically bend and form um, a structure. And it forms something like an inchworm that can then walk around. So it's it's 3D printed robot that can almost assemble itself. Now, you know, next generation um, maybe a robot can uh, you know can 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 put the battery and the motor in there, or these they'll have pre-assembled batteries and motors so they can actually assemble themselves when they come out of the printer and get up and walk away. You know, that's kind of scary sounding in a way. Um, okay, I'll say. But but then also, like, one step beyond that is, you know, could one of these things um, come out of the 3D printer, get up and walk away, and then go and push the button on the printer and create another one and, you know, basically continue continuous self-replication. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is getting to be pretty wild stuff, <laughs> and it's happening fast. A bit of a Pandora's box, I'd say. It is, you know, and it's one of those things like every technology we have, nuclear technology and uh, nanotech and cloning and all these things come with dangers if they're, if they're used incorrectly uh, or, or used in a way that um, can, you know, create a, you know, some negative aspect to, to the technology, they will. So somebody has to be either putting fail-safes in or, you know, developing, it's like, you know, that whole war with viruses on your computer and antiviral software, um, it seems to me that the antivirus guys have pretty much won. I, you know, no, don't know very many people that get viruses anymore. 
um, knock on wood. But, you know, this, this seems to be a pattern that we have technologies that can be exploited for, for good or bad, and there are a few people that exploit them for bad, and then there are more people that tend to exploit them for, for good, uh, ostensibly good purposes, and, and they usually win out. So let's hope that that happens with 3D technology, too. Kim Elvidge, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Richard, and enjoy your time in Greece. It was a Will do. very clean connection. It was uh, great being on the show again. Always a pleasure. Jim Elvidge, theuniversesolved.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. The website, of course, www.richardserrett.com. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads.